Well, good morning and welcome to the online worship service for South Suburban Christian Church. We want to welcome you today. Whether you're joining us on our online.church platform, whether you're watching this from our archived uh, messages on YouTube, or listening to us on Spotify or SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcast, thank you for taking time to be with us today. We're in the uh, season of Advent, the third Sunday of Advent today, as uh, we are looking at Luke chapter 1. Pastor Joe kicked us off on that first Sunday of Advent uh, as we reflected on the annunciation, the announcement uh, by Gabriel, the angel, that Mary would bear a child, that this child would be the way in which God saves the people. Uh, and then last week we looked at the virgin birth, the significance of that, and this week, we continue in our study in Luke chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 34. Now, some of these messages are sort of overlapping each other, so uh, if we're reading some from the previous week or you hear a little bit next week, it's, it's, it's intentional that we want you to, to get a full and complete understanding as best we can of Luke chapter 1 as we prepare to celebrate the nativity of Christ, the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 34, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1 and the scriptures uh, quite a bit today, so keep your Bibles open, keep them near to you, and as we read together, beginning in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. The picture up on your screen is the Wadi Rum. It's a desert in the southern part of Jordan. It's a place that I've been on several occasions and absolutely love for its beauty, for its stark beauty. You've probably seen it too. If you haven't been there in person, you've probably seen it in movies or read about it in books. It was made famous by the stories surrounding uh, Lawrence of Arabia and the Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Uh, more recently, it was the scene for the filming of the movie The Martian with Matt Damon and is typically a place where uh, sci-fi movies are filled because of its otherworldly aspects. It's also a popular destination for outdoor tourists who want to go and, and see the stars as it's so far away from civilization there's no artificial light uh, to get in the way and you can literally see the stars of heaven and all of their multitudes and even the spirals of the Milky Way galaxy. As a matter of fact, my most uh, memorable aspect of being in the Wadi Rum is my cell phone. In the middle of nowhere, I had five bars of service. Now, to put that into perspective, I only get two or three bars uh, here in the Denver, Colorado area from, from the church to my house. But more significantly about that desert, the Wadi Rum, it's one of the places that most scholars believe that Moses and the Israelites traveled through on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land. It was anciently called the land of the Midianites and the land of the Edomites, an ancient people who 
that the Hebrews not only needed to contend with in their exodus, but would come up over and over and over again and, and, and wouldn't be reconciled or, or overcome until the time of David. It was in the desert that you're looking at that the Hebrews received bread from heaven each morning. It was through this desert that God appeared as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. It was here that the tribes of Israel set up the tabernacle, an ancient tent, a place to worship, a place upon which to focus, within which was the Ark of the Covenant, that ancient gold-gilded box in which was placed the Ten Commandments written by the very finger of God, and on top, angels with wings that would form a seat called by the ancient Jews the mercy seat, upon which they believed God would sit when He came to dwell with His people. That tabernacle was a symbol of God's presence and God's power in the midst of His people. The first point that I want to share with you this morning is is God wants to outweigh everything in your life. Now I want you to remember that word, outweigh. It's going to come up again, especially on Christmas Eve. You know, over the last six or seven months of this nine months of being separated, we have heard a lot of I can't wait statements. I can't wait to hug and shake hands again. I can't wait to gather with my brothers and sisters and sing as loudly as I can without a mask on. I can't wait to share the Lord's Supper from a common cup again. I can't wait to see the whole church worship at the church building again. I think at first glance, as we have heard those statements, the thing that kind of jumps out at us most poignantly is the I can't wait part. You know, and I I think that's important in this season of Advent, this season of waiting, this season of expectation. But I think more subtly in those statements is a desire for connection, a hunger for community, for relationships, for presence. Now, I don't discount the hunger for presence for human interaction. Lots of groups offer presence and community. I mean, there's the Rotary, the Kiwanis Club, the Community Softball League, the the Quilt Club, the Book Club. Human history is replete with examples of our need to be in community and our desire to make ways in which we can be together. Folks who have studied human communities over the past several decades about human communities that go back hundreds, if not thousands of years, have identified that we human beings almost always tend to organize ourselves in three basic primary ways. The first is the family, mom, dad, the kids. The second is the tribe. This includes the grandparents, aunts and uncles and cousins. And then finally, the village, where multiple families come together to support one another, to help one another. Humanity has always built constructs and organizations for us to connect with one another. But the Hebrew people, and now the church, have understood that what separated the Israelites and the church, consequently, from every other wandering group of people, every other group of organizations that people might form themselves in, we have been differentiated because of the tabernacle. Or more generally, an idea that what holds our community together, what our community look towards, look, 
looks toward for our sense of identity and meaning, meaning and belonging is the presence of God. God's presence with His people. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, after Moses had received the law on Mount Sinai, God gives Moses special instructions to construct a tent, a special kind of tent that would serve as the focal point for the people, the tabernacle. In the Septuagint, you remember we introduced that last week, that Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It's the Bible that Jesus would have read. It's the version of the Bible that Mary would have been most familiar. And if you go back and you look at Exodus uh, chapter 40, verse 35, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the original Hebrew, this is what it says. And Moses was not able to enter into the tabernacle of testimony because the cloud overshadowed it, and the tabernacle was filled with the glory of the Lord. Those are the same exact words that Gabriel uses to explain to Mary what is about to happen to her. Look back at the text that was read this morning. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the angel Gabriel says, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, it's translated in the modern English as the glory or the power of God will fill you. But it literally means that the presence of God will outweigh everything else in you. That the weight of God's presence will come upon you. That God outweighs everything else in the lives of the Hebrew people as they're gathering around the tabernacle. That God outweighs everything else in Mary's life in this moment and forevermore. You see, the difference between the church and every other community organization is that God is at the center of our lives, outweighing everything else in our life, taking first place when it comes to our family, first place with our kids, taking first place with our hopes and our dreams, first place in our homes, our work, our companies, our finances. Gabriel uses that same imagery of God overshadowing, or more accurately, outweighing the tabernacle, that divine community of wandering Israelites. He uses that same language to describe what is about to happen to Mary. In many ways, you could say that Mary becomes the tabernacle, just as that tent was for the Hebrew people in the time of Moses. What's that mean for us Christians? What is the tabernacle Mary giving to us? Jesus, the eternal Word, God made flesh, God with us, is about to come into human existence, the human realm, in a miraculous and supernatural way. Luke, as he records this, in many ways is using the image of the tabernacle to describe Mary. As God came to dwell with those people in the tabernacle while the Hebrews were wandering out in the desert in the Wadi Rum, God is about to use Mary to come into the world as God has made flesh, Emmanuel, which means 
God with us. One of the fun things that I really enjoyed about the Wadi Rum when I was there is that the locals who actually live there in the desert make a living receiving donations from the tourists who come out to watch camel races and offer camel rides. There was one local guide who invited me to take a ride on his camel. Well, I looked at the camel, and in my opinion, it didn't seem like a very strong camel at all. But uh, even though I had declined and said, no, I, I don't want to do that to that poor camel, after the protests of the, of the guide and the encouragement of the group with which I was with, with I decided to climb on that camel. And that poor camel, as it tried to get to his feet, just staggered under the weight of me. And finally the guide said in his broken English, you have to get off, you weigh too much. Well, I could have told you that. You didn't need to be a scholar to know that. But then again, that was 13 years and about 60 pounds ago. The second point I want to share with you this morning is God also outweighs every obstacle in our lives. In verse 36, Gabriel says to Mary, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. In this scene with Gabriel and Mary, the Hebrews, hearing this, would have immediately thought of Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. In the Genesis 18 text, God is telling Abraham and Sarah, his wife, that they will have a child through which God would build a nation and through which the world would come to know the one true God, that all nations would call God blessed. In the midst of this announcement, Sarah, Abraham's wife, laughs out loud and responds with a rather deriding statement. You can look at Genesis 18, 14 with me. Sarah says, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? To Sarah, this was utter nonsense. Scholars say that Sarah was probably somewhere around 90 years old. It's impossible for a 90-year-old to have a child. She's wore out. Abraham's wore out. And yet, in the midst of virtual hopelessness, God steps in and declares the impossible to be possible. I love the exchange there in Genesis 18, 13. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And and here's where it gets humorous. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he, that is God, said, No, but you did laugh. (laughs) No better words have been uttered by a parent to a child, huh? Earlier in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, in the scenes that are before the text we're reading about Mary, hear these words. Luke chapter 1, verse 13. The same angel has come, Gabriel, has come to Zechariah. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy 
and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Like Sarah, Zechariah responds with doubt. How shall I know this, Zechariah says? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Gabriel doesn't take that very well. <laughs> Maybe a, 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 a pastorite translation. Gabriel says, look, old man, I'm one of the angels that serves in the actual presence of God regularly. Man, I have seen firsthand what God can do. And here I have come to bring you good news. Good news, which means the gospel. And all you have to say is to complain and to doubt. Well, let me fix that you won't be able to speak at all until your baby actually comes. If you don't have anything good to say, anything edifying to say, then we'll make sure that you don't say anything at all. You know, come to think of it, I think my grandmother and Gabriel might have been friends. Point three. Mary's response is submission, which brings resolve and joy. Mary, like Sarah and Abraham, like Zechariah, is told about something that is great and miraculous, something beyond human comprehension. But her response is completely different from Sarah's, totally different from Zechariah's. Behold, she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You know, sometimes the Bible makes things sound pretty. <laughs> but it doesn't really capture the original meaning, the raw meaning of the original language. So let me give you the raw, literal, translated meaning of what Mary said here. You might say, another pastor-like interpretation or, or translation one that is specifically honest to the original words. Mary says, I am the slave of the Lord. It will come to be according to your word. That word slave, not just servant, slave. And it will come to be. In the original language, it conveys the idea of not just that this thing will happen, but that it is what Mary is wishing for. It is what Mary is expecting. It is what Mary has, ha, has been dreaming about all of her life. She is honored to receive this word. 
this word from the Lord through Gabriel, are you ready, outweighs everything that has ever happened in our life and outweighs anything that will ever happen in the days to come. In a pretty King James language, you might say, Mary is so filled with joy that God is overshadowing her. And she couldn't be more joyful. On the other side of this outcropping of rocks, which rises up in the midst of the Wadi Rum, that desert in Jordan, you will probably recognize that particular outcropping as T.E. Lawrence's Seven Pillars of Wisdom. That's not really important today. As a matter of fact, scholars argue about Lawrence and and all of that. It it doesn't really matter. What does matter is I can imagine those rocks having been there for the ages of ages. The wind and the weather have worn them away, and the stone that stands has been beaten for the 3,400 years since the Hebrew people walked past them on their way to the Promised Land. On this particular trip to Jordan, Shauna and I had just lost our first child. And this trip really was for us a a pilgrimage, a a journey deep into God's heart. Um, There was a lot of pain that my wife and I were carrying on this trip. We were with friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, and we kept up the front that one needs to keep up. But what we really wanted was to meet God. In that particular day in the Wadi Rum, we pulled away from the group for just a moment, just the two of us. And on the back of a business card that I had in my pocket, I wrote a prayer. A prayer thanking God for our daughter, Grace Sophia, who was now with him. A prayer for healing for us. And a prayer that in spite of what the doctors had said, that we would likely never have a family. And even if we were successful, it would be one time and there would be no possibility of any other children after that. We just wanted God to know that we needed Him. His grace and His mercy and His blessing to be present with us. We took that card and we rolled it up and we tucked it into the crevice of a rock in the middle of the desert. You know, I can imagine that as the Hebrew people might have paused and made camp at the base of that rock because it provides protection and shade, it's a perfectly appropriate place for a large group of people to stop. I can imagine that the smoke from the altar at the tabernacle might have wafted across the desert and met those rocks and made its way on up into the kingdom of heaven. I like to imagine that the smoke from the incense that was burning in the tabernacle, symbolizing the prayers of the people, might have billowed across that same valley and hit those same rocks. But most importantly for me in that moment, I knew that those rocks in which we had placed that prayer had overlooked a people, the Hebrew people, as they camped 
as they offered their prayers, as they tried to deal with their sense of despair about where they had come from and where they were going, not knowing what God was leading them into, not sure where tomorrow's meal would come from. I imagine that those rocks looked at a people for whom the presence of God outweighed everything else in their life. That God overshadowed them. You know, sometimes we have to find ourselves in deserts before we become aware of God's weight. (laughs) Sometimes the hard lessons of full surrender Sometimes the lessons of how to avoid the same lack of faith that hindered Sarah and caused Zechariah to go mute, looking for the faith of Mary, we have to become slaves of the Lord. It will come to be according to your word. That's the prayer that you and I need to pray as a church. It's the prayer that we need to pray as folks who are being invited into this Advent season by the Holy Spirit, preparing ourselves to celebrate Christmas. It's the prayer we need to pray as the whole world seems to be upside down now. And yet, hope seems to be on the horizon. But what will the world look like after that? Well, look to one another. But also... Look to the tabernacle. Look for the tabernacle in your desert. Look to Mary, the tabernacle of flesh, from which came the eternal Word, the eternal Son of the Father. For it is from her, the one whom we worship has come, whose birth we will soon celebrate, and whose coming again we expect with the same joy with the same submission, with the same hope that our dear sister Mary had. We are servants of the Lord. May it be according to your word. If you haven't made Jesus Christ Lord of your life, would you do that today? Would you become a servant of the Lord? Would you let God overshadow, outweigh, you say yes to this question do you believe that jesus is the christ the son of the living god and do you accept him as lord and savior if you've done that and you're on our online.church platform would you click the button that says that you have made a decision for christ if you're joining us on any of our other platforms would you send us an email at office at southsuburban.com that we can walk with you as together we look to the tabernacle the presence of God in our midst, that we might perceive and see and celebrate the coming of the eternal word, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.